Welcome to the Church of the City podcast. My name is Matt Naismith, and I'm the pastor of Teaching and Vision uh, for Church of the City in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. And today is a little bit different than our usual podcast. Uh, typically, I'm teaching from the from our Sunday morning location, a uh, high school here in Guelph, Ontario. But right now, I'm actually in the comfort of my own home office because we had some technical difficulties with the recording this morning. And so I'm just going to go through my message this morning here in my office. It's going to feel a little bit more in formal, uh, but I hope you'll enjoy nonetheless. Uh, this morning we began a series that I've titled Questions. So if you've ever had any questions about it, whether or not you feel like you have a decent biblical worldview to questions about God's existence, the relationship of God and science, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the credibility of the Bible, the exclusivity of faith, questions about sexuality, questions about marijuana, and even questions about violence. I hope you'll keep coming back every single week as we explore each of these topics over the next nine weeks within our church family, and then they'll be posted here live on the podcast. Now, I think this series is really great for a couple of different groups of people. Uh, the first group might be people that you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't identify yourself as a Christian, but maybe you're asking questions. You're a skeptic and you're asking questions of the world. You're asking questions about religion. You're asking questions about God. I hope that this series will hopefully help you on your journey of some sort of faith. But then it might also, the second group of people that this series might help are those of you that are listening in and you are a follower of Jesus, but you feel don't feel like you really have a great grasp on how to answer some of the questions or on these topics as you're having conversations with your friends. I really appreciate the teaching and ministry of Tim Keller from New York City. And he writes this, I wrote this in a Facebook post uh, in January of this year. He said, people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. And you might be someone who actually currently are in the midst of a tragedy or you're in the midst of trying to answer questions to somebody that's asking you questions about your faith. And so my hope over the next nine weeks is that I would at least help give you some form of basis to answer the questions that might be coming your way. Now, I think that there are a couple of barriers in our culture right now to asking difficult questions and actually finding answers to difficult questions. And the first, the first barrier I see is the barrier of distraction. I started a new book this week by a guy by the name of Alan Noble, and the book is called Disruptive Witness. And he talks about the distracted age in which we live, and he writes this. He says, the distracted age has three major effects on our ability to communicate about matters of faith and ultimate meaning. He says, number one, it's easier to ignore contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs. Secondly, we are less likely to devote time to introspection. And thirdly, conversations about faith can easily be perceived as just another exercise in superficial identity formation. And so maybe for you, you've recognized this even about your own life, a lack of a opportunity to actually take time for introspection and reflection because we're so distracted in the culture in which we live. So that's one barrier. A second barrier to talking about hard questions and actually finding answers is I think the genuine fear that people have of getting answers to their questions. I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I was participating in an evangelism workshop or a, a teaching about how to share your faith with other people. 
And the person leading the workshop encouraged us as participants to text friends this single question. And the question was this, if you could ask God any question and get an answer from him, what would it be? And I remember texting that to a friend. And a couple weeks later, I got together with this friend for coffee and, and I asked them, I said, hey, what are some of those questions that you would ask God if you had an opportunity to ask God, assuming that he exists? And they said, well, I'd ask questions about why are there so many world religions? Uh, could they all be true? Uh, things of this nature. And I, and I asked a question back to this person and I said, if you could have the answers to those questions, would you want to know them? And this person's response to me was, I'm not really sure. And I think my friend's response is the response of many people to difficult questions is, is fear of the answers. Because if I have the answers, I might not like where the answers lead me. And it might actually lead me to need to change something about my own life. So over the next nine weeks, I'm really recognizing that it's difficult to, in our culture to talk about hard questions as much as I believe we're all looking for answers to these big questions about life. Now, the topic and the question today is, does God exist? Now, I'll be completely honest. I grew up in a family that believed in God's existence. But a time came in my own life where I needed to answer the question for myself of, am I going to believe in God's existence? Am I going to trust that God does, in fact, exist? And I know that there's probably lots of people listening to this podcast right now, and you have an experience where you grew up in a family where you did not believe, your family did not believe in God's existence, but maybe now you are considering God's existence or have converted to a faith position in which you do believe in God. And so every single human being at some point will go through and ask this question, does God exist? Now here in the West, I would say there are some barriers. As there are barriers to asking hard questions, there's also barriers to actually believing in God's existence. And one of those barriers is just the cultural assumptions that we make here in the Western world, which I believe many of these assumptions actually lead to improbable structures. And one of those examples of a cultural assumption we make in the West is that there just simply can't be one true religion. That's just an assumption that we make in the West, that there can't be one true religion. Now, for this assumption, assumption to be true, either one, God doesn't exist, or secondly, God does exist, but he just doesn't care at all what you and I believe. God exists, but he just simply doesn't care what you and I believe if this cultural assumption of there only being one true religion. And so it's an improbability structure, this, these cultural assumptions that were led to. I was in Lebanon recently, and it's far more uh, accepted in Lebanon that the existence of God is a real thing, that God does, in fact, exist, although there are different theistic worldviews at play in that country. Second barrier to believing in God's existence here in the West is the problem of evil and suffering. Lots of people just say, well, there can't be a God because look at evil and suffering in the world. But a challenge I would bring back to the question of evil and suffering is that every single worldview and every single faith position needs to account for the problem of evil and suffering. But then thirdly, a third barrier to believing in God's existence here within our culture is the belief in the need of physical evidence. You might hear someone say, well, I can't study God under a microscope, therefore God can't exist. Now, right off the bat, there are a couple of problems with this assertion. The first one is that there are many things in life that we believe about the world that we can't study or prove under a microscope. So, for example, I can't prove to you under a microscope that I ate breakfast or lunch today. I can maybe show you some of the evidences that something was eaten in my home, but I can't prove to you that I, in fact, ate breakfast and 
lunch today. So that, that would be one problem with this understanding that I can't study God in our microscope, therefore he can't exist. Secondly, if the basis of some sort of belief is what can be studied under a microscope, then the premise of this particular objection being that I can't study under God under a microscope, therefore he can't exist, this assertion, this position can't be studied under a microscope, and therefore it's unfair to assume that this is a reality. And so very, very much this is the case. No one can actually prove an ultimate criterion for truth without actually using it. So I think this breaks down as well, this idea of physical evidence. But then fourthly, belief in God in our culture is perceived as being irrational. Like a lot of people just th say, well, you know, belief in God is just irrational. But here's the thing about belief in God. Belief in God, we cannot prove God's existence 100%. But what we can do is test the various worldviews that exist within our world and ask ourselves whether or not they are the most rational based upon the evidence of what we see in the world. And so as you can't prove that God exists 100%, you also can't disprove that God exists 100%. And so we have to ask questions about our worldviews and come to some sort of understanding as far as taking all of the different premises of all the different worldview, which one makes most, most sense based upon the experiences in which we have. So based on this and my own personal conviction, I am going to present to you in this podcast today four reasons why I believe it is very rational and likely to consider the fact that God does exist. Now, as a definition of term, what do I mean by God? For the purpose of this podcast and this teaching, we are exploring the premise of a theistic view of God, one God who is all-powerful, eternal, and infinite. Okay, so for the purpose of this podcast, we are talking about a theistic view of God. So, four reasons that I think belief in God is both rational and worth considering for you as you maybe are sitting there listening are the following. And they all begin with M, so they're really, really easy. And the first one is the reason of matter. Matter. Now, what do I mean by matter? I mean the beauty and the complexity of creation. In other words, the fine-tuning and the design of the universe. I want you to picture in your mind right now the most beautiful thing in creation that you have ever seen. Maybe it's a sunset. Maybe you're, you're thinking of some sort of high uh, mountain in which you were standing upon, looking out over like the lower plain beneath you, and you were just sort of swept up in the beauty of creation. And I believe that the order and design of the universe screams the existence of an intelligent designer who is both outside of space and time. As not only you consider the beauty that you're taking in in that moment, but also all of the different elements and the things at play that are actually creating that scene in front of you. Now, for many people, they argue this idea of God's existence through uh, matter, and they would say, well, evolution simply describes for us how things exist, why creation is the way that it is. But here's the problem with a simple understanding of evolution, is that evolution can only deal with organic design. And what it does, it assumes the orderly forces of nature that even allow things like natural selection or fit or allowing for fit species to survive. And it doesn't give much credit to something known as the contingency principle, which essentially means that something cannot come from nothing. An example of this is actually the Big Bang. In 1929, a guy by the name of Edwin Hubble discovered that galaxies are moving away from each other. And therefore, what he discovered is that the universe must have 
uh, begun together. And therefore, we must have had some sort of start or a beginning, which led to the Big Bang principle. But then the question that you need to ask, based upon the contingency example, the contingency principle, is what led to the Big Bang? And an answer to that question, I believe, is that something that would lead to the Big Bang must be immaterial and something that transcends the universe. Uh, Francis Collins, a, a quite prominent and well-known scientist uh, who was uh, an atheist and then converted to Christianity, his book, The Language of God, is excellent, and he writes this, The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. And so Francis looks at the evidence and he says there must be some sort of transcendent being, a divine explanation outside of the Big Bang. Now, and oftentimes you'll hear the rebuttal of, well, the Big Bang, and this is oftentimes scientifically understood, that what led to the Big Bang is the multiverse principle. And this principle is that there were a countless series of universes prior to our universe that led to our universe's um, existence. But the problem with this is that the fine-tuning of the universe by an intelligent designer, in my perspective, and many others, is far more probable than many, even, we can't even suggest how many universes there would have been, how many of these that it would have been needed to have perfect succinctness to pre-exist our own. Uh, writing about this simple, like, miraculous reality of our own universe's existence, a guy by the name of Eric McTaxis, in his Wall Street Journal article titled, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God, writes this about the sheer craziness of our own universe. And he says, The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. He said, for example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one value and the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the nuclear strong force and the electric magnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, by even one part in ten with sixteen zeros after it, then no stars could have ever formed at all. Feel free to gulp. Multiply that single parameter by the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads ten quintillion times in a row. He writes, continued, The greatest miracle of all time without any close seconds is the universe. It is the miracle of all miracles, one that ineluctably points with combined brightness of every star to something or someone beyond itself. And so what Metaxas is saying is that the, this is crazy as we look at our, our own universe. How in the world could we believe that there are multiple universes that would have led to our own with this sort of precision? Plus, another problem with this multiverse principle is that there's simply no evidence for an infinite number of universes or a 20 billion year cycle. They're simply conjecture and their faith positions. So it's a faith position in the multiverse as it is a faith position in the belief, an intelligent designer. 
Now, another rebuttal might be, well, who created God? But what we understand about God is that God didn't need to be created. God is mind. God is spirit. We read this in the Bible in John 4, verse 24. And Jesus said, God is spirit. Therefore, we don't have any evidence that God needed to exist because he is bigger than matter. He isn't matter. He is mind. But with the best we can prove is that the universe began to exist. So there's reason number one, that belief in God is rational, matter. So if we can believe that potentially there is an intelligent designer that, that created matter, well, what would be the reason for this matter coming to, into existence? And this is the second reason why I believe it's rational to believe in the existence of God. And it's the reason and argument for meaning. Now, what this means is that in order for us to have ultimate purpose, meaning, and significance, there must be a God. And I would, I would suggest to you that many people are trying to find meaning in their life. They're trying to find ultimate purpose and significance. There was a book that became a, a very quickly a bestseller. It was called The Purpose Driven Life by a pastor named Rick Warren. And by 2007, it sold over 30 million copies. I'm not sure what the current uh, selling rate is on the book, but I'm sure it's great because people are attracted to this idea of we must have purpose. The reason for my life, it must have some sort of reason or purpose. And Secondly, there's a course that was started by a church in London, England, and it's called Alpha. And the tagline of the course is, is there more to life than this? And 23 million people have taken this course worldwide. And many people have taken this course and they've come to know Jesus. They've come to know and to have belief in God. Why? Because we must and have to believe that there is some sort of meaning to our lives. Now, why do we care so much about meaning? Well, firstly, if God does not exist, there's actually no ultimate purpose for your life. But what I mean by purpose, a goal or reason for something. If God doesn't exist, there's no transcendent reality. And each of us just need to realize that we're going to die and life is ultimately absurd and it really has no hope. Secondly, if God does not exist, there's no ultimate value in life. We'll talk a little bit more about morality but there will be no objective standards for good and evil or for right and wrong if, if God does not exist. And thirdly, if God does not exist, there's no ultimate significance to life. What do I mean by significance? I mean something's importance. So you might say, okay, I'm hearing this, this meaning argument, but, but I've got a problem with it. And my problem with it is that meaning can be found in the everyday stuff of life. You, you don't need a transcendent meaning to live a meaningful life. Like I walked my dog. I found great meaning and satisfaction and value in that. Now, the problem with this way of thinking is that this may be true subjectively. So what I mean by that is true for you. But is it true objectively for everyone? And how can you know if your life is truly meaningful? And what do we do about those whose definition of a meaningful life may in fact take the meaning out of somebody else's life? Because certainly, as we're all searching for our subjective views of meaning, there must be some sort of conflict that will arise. Like if my meaning comes from taking something from you, what are you going to do about that? And so what we need then is the existence of God to understand that there's actually a purpose and a meaning for our existence that we gain and get from a theistic view of God. So there, we have matter and we have meaning. But let's continue to the third reason for the probability of God's existence. Uh, something that I hinted at as we were going through meaning. And the third reason, and I think one of the strongest cases for God's existence, is morality. It's the argument of the soul or moral obligation. 
And what I mean by this, it's the felt and realistic sense that each of us have a moral obligation in life, which I'm talking about. It's more than just sort of moral values or feelings. This is a moral obligation, something that you definitely should do. It's the difference between it's something being right and wrong. But if there is no God, we have little need for moral obligations because then our morality is simply subjective. It's what you make of it, what you define as right, and what, what I define as wrong. But here's some examples of innate human morality. When you see somebody cutting in line, that's got to upset you. It's, it screams out, it's from inside of you. That's not fair. How about bullying on the playground or when you see somebody treating somebody else poorly? Or how about when you see or hear examples of people pillaging and destroying the environment? Or maybe you are someone that you actually believe that there is injustice in the world. Or you say that I need to stand up for the weak and the vulnerable, uh, vulnerable people and populations of society. But hear me, if there's no God, each of these feelings, what I just recommend as examples, are subjective and they shouldn't ultimately bother you. If you're going to get upset with somebody for cutting in line, you're leaning into some sort of moral obligation, some sort of moral understanding of what is actually absolutely right and something that's absolutely wrong. Now, arguments against this idea of morality, someone might say, well, every moral position is an expression of the subjective views of the speaker. But the problem with this assertion is that this statement, this assertion alone is a moral obligation. It's a moral absolute. And so as a result, it's a self-defeating statement to say such a thing, to suggest that, well, if morality is simply subjective or if truth is not absolute, then you're making an absolute truth claim by saying the very statement that you're suggesting. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depends on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found that I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea was justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple." And so he's saying there's, there must be some sort of moral obligation. And so therefore there must be God. Well, a second rebuttal or a second argument against God's existence by morality is someone might say, well, morality is just a product of people and cultures. But this assertion and the problem with this belief is that it's hypocritical because inevitably what you will do is compare peoples and cultures to your own objective moral obligation or absolutes which leads you ultimately with no leg to stand on if you hold that morality is a subjective product of peoples and cultures. So an example of this, uh, back last year, I was in Edmonton. I was in downtown Edmonton, and I was there for my sister's uh, graduation. And we were going to a restaurant downtown, and I saw some people standing on the street corner, and they were looking for signatures, and they were there representing the organization It's a Girl. And they were looking for people to sign a petition uh, for the work that they were doing in trying to eliminate child marriage on the other side of the world. 
And, and I totally want to just say right off the bat, I totally assert and I say, like, I agree with what they're doing. But the problem is, is that I disagree with, I agree with what these people are doing because I believe in, in a God who has a desire for the way that we live our lives. If you simply hold that morality is a product of peoples and cultures, what these people are saying is, is that we believe our Canadian culture is better than yours, which is leaning into an absolute moral obligation. So that would be a problem if I would say to the, to the argument back against God's existence of morality is that morality a product of peoples and cultures. But thirdly, someone might argue that morality is simply a product of evolution. But the problem with this is that it accounts only for moral feelings and not moral obligations. Therefore, it would be very hard to prove that things like rape and killing are actually moral obligations because they might work with evolution eventually if you're given in your given culture. Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, writes this about this conundrum. He says, in the 1960s and 70s, the inconsistency of moral relativism was on full display. In one breath, that generation, committed as they were to a sexual revolution, was saying, no one is going to tell me what I can do with my body. I'll do whatever I want with it. Morality is relative to the person who concludes it. Stop trying to impose your old-fashioned traditional views of sex on me. And yet in the next breath, they were protesting the Vietnam War, which they saw as morally unjust, and in so doing, imposing their views on everyone else, whether others wanted to hear them or not. But who were they to decide that the war was immoral and impose their views on the government? When you remove objective morality from the picture, can't those in power kill whomever they deem an enemy? What absolute moral law were the protesters citing to say otherwise? And so what you see here is that if morality is a product of evolution, you end up running into contradictions and hypocrisy within your own views. But then a fourth argument against the existence of God with morality might be, well, you don't need God to have moral obligations. But honestly, the problem with this is that it is somewhat silly because you would have unavoidable obligations to do things that would ultimately give you no benefit in your life at all. And why would these moral obligations arise in the first place if we're just trying to multiply our genetic code? For example, Tim Keller writes in The Reason for God, he says, For evolutionary purposes, hostility to all people outside of one's group should be widely considered moral and right behavior. Yet today, we believe that sacrificing time, money, emotion, and even life, especially for someone not of our kind or tribe, is right. And so you absolutely need God to have these moral obligations, especially if you're going to go to the level of sacrificing your own time, your own comforts for the good of somebody else. So that's three reasons for God's existence. Matter, meaning, morality. The fourth one is music. Now, what do I mean by music? I'm talking about art. I'm talking about great art that brings love and beauty into full display. When you think about maybe one of your favorite songs and just getting caught up in the song's beauty or maybe one of your favorite television shows or a favorite movie, maybe a show that brought tears to your eyes like This Is Us. These are incredible things and, and they point in my perspective to the existence of God. Because God is the author of beauty and the author of love. Now, someone might argue against this position of God's existence based upon music. They would say, well, just because we feel these things exist, love and beauty, is no argument that they do. But the problem with this view is the difference between innate versus artificial desires. 
And the reality is, is that you and I live with an innate desire that nothing in time and space can satisfy. A desire for an unknown something. C.S. Lewis writes on in his article on living in an atomic age, he says, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms, and that your response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is a pure illusion, that you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. And therefore, because we find beauty and love in this world, we must ask ourselves where these good desires come from and why we desire them, but can actually never find them to be fully satisfied and filled on this earth. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity sees this as yet another proof of God's existence. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So there you have it, right? Matter, meaning, morality, and music. Four reasons to consider the existence of God. But here, here's where I want to transition a little bit. But what about the Christian understanding of God? Does this God make sense? The Christian understanding of God, does it make sense of these four things? If we look at the Christian worldview, and surprise, surprise, it does. According to Christianity, God has revealed himself through matter or through creation. You can look and find in Psalm 19, verse 1, we read this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then in Romans 1, verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul is writing here to the Roman church is that we have great reason to believe in God's existence as we look at creation, that God's nature, his attributes are on display for us as we look at creation. So that's first in matter. But God's also revealed himself in meaning, according to Christianity. In Genesis 1, verses 27 to 28, God creates humanity and he gives them purpose. And he also creates them in his image. He creates us and we are so different than the rest of the created order because we are made in the image of God. And he says to his humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gives us purpose, significance, value, and meaning. He's given us a reason to exist. But then thirdly, in the Christian understanding of God, we read about morality. And we read again in the book of Romans, a letter that's written to the Roman church by a guy by the name of Paul. In Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness." 
what Paul is saying is that for the people who do not have maybe a Judeo-Christian understanding of values and morality, every single human being has an internal conscience that's been given to them by God and a basic understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And so therefore, yet again, none of us have an excuse to say, no, there is no God because of the moral reality and obligations that we live with in our lives. But then fourthly, also, the Christian God gives us and reveals himself through music, through beauty, through love. John 3.16, uh, Jesus says this, for God so loved the world. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that as image bearers, you creation, you people, as image bearers made in God's image, that you human beings share the capacity to love others and to be deeply loved. We were made to love God and to be loved by him, to find his beauty in music and art and experience. What we understand of this is that the Christian God is a personal God, a God that you and I can know, and a God who loves us, loves us with his great mercy and grace. So you might be saying, and maybe some of your friends will say, okay, that's great. So the Christian God, you know, matter, meaning, morality, and music. But isn't the Christian God just like the other theistic views of God? And this is where Christianity is completely different than every other world religion. In the reality of the good news that the Christian God wants to have a personal, loving relationship with you. The personal Loving God, the Christian God wants to have a loving relationship with you. Now you might say, but I've, I've failed morally. I know I have been unjust. I don't deserve God's love. And so here's what God does. The Christian understanding of God, this is what he does. God, the author and creator of matter, meaning, morality, and music, because he wants to have a personal relationship with us, he's made it possible through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the empowering presence of his spirit. What I'm saying is that Christianity is unlike the rest because all the other theistic views of religion say that you need to do a number of things. You need to obey God and do all of these things. And once you've lived a good, obedient life, once you've earned yourself God's favor, then you can spend eternity with God. And the Christian understanding of God, what we understand is that God knows that none of our good deeds could ever outweigh our bad deeds. But God loved us too much to leave us to our own devices. And so God came to us. Jesus, who was God, came to us and he lived the life that you and I could not live, the perfect life that we could not live. And then he died the death that you and I should have died because of our, our moral rebellion. And then he came back to life, which leads to the hope that we can also, we come to life when we trust in the good news of Jesus. The book of James in the Bible, James was actually written uh, by Jesus' earthly brother, James. Now, just as a challenge and a question, like, how hard would it be to convince your sibling that you were God? Yet James came to understand that his brother Jesus was, in fact, both man and God. And in James 3, verses 4 and 5, he writes this, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. James is saying that Jesus, God himself, came to us. That this author of creation, the God, the author of matter, of, of meaning and purpose, of giving us morality, and then also helping us understand what is true love and beauty, he came to us to save us. And so maybe you're listening to this podcast and you've never really understood how do you begin a relationship with God. Maybe you're for the first time considering that God might exist. But now I am telling you that this God who does exist wants to have a personal relationship with you. But there's a problem is that there's nothing that you can do to ever earn God's love or favor. But this Christian understanding of God, we understand that God knows that about us. And so he made a way for us to have a relationship with him by coming to us, by doing what we could not do for ourselves so that we could spend eternity in relationship with him. And that's not an eternity later. That's an eternity now that he wants a personal, loving relationship with you. Now, if you're in this moment, if you're struggling to believe in God, I want to challenge you to ask the spirit of God to make God real to you right now. For what we understand, it's the Spirit of God who brings people to life. And so maybe right now you just need to pray and say, God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come alive to me right now. Or maybe you're listening and you're struggling in your current relationship with God. And I would just challenge you as well to ask the Spirit of God to bring you to life. For the Spirit of God to pour the love of God deep into your heart. And to convict you of your sin, but also lead you into the newness of life that he has provided for you. And so I don't know where you're at right now, whether you're new to this Christian journey, new to this podcast. But I just want to encourage you and tell you and help you understand, hopefully in a little small way today, that God loves you. He's for you. He's not against you. That he does exist. And he wants to have a personal relationship with you, not just creation at large. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. And he's done everything necessary for you to have a meaningful and deep relationship with himself. Let me pray for you. So God, I thank you for whoever is listening to this podcast right now. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would allow them to deeply understand that you do exist and that you're for them and not against them. And that you have, that you came to this earth to live the life that they could not live, took the death that we deserved upon yourself so that we can live forever through the great good news of your resurrection, you defeating sin and death. And so I thank you for those that are listening. I pray that you bless them. If there's anybody that's listening that has never committed their life to you, that they would do so today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, that is all for tonight. This was the first question, Does a God Exist?, in our series called Questions uh, for Church of the City in Guelph, Ontario. Hey, I hope you'll return next week to the podcast. This next Sunday, I'll be talking about the relationship of God and science and how we uh, make sense of the relationship between God and science. So I hope you'll listen back and uh, join us as we continue in this series, Questions. You're deeply loved. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.